I'm reading from the book of Titus and the first chapter, the first 16 verses. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at this appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Saviour. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Saviour. The reason I tell you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appointed elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing and not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. For the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. Thanks, Joan. So the Bible reading is actually on those leaflets as well, in full, so keep that in front of you. So who's the best leader or boss that you've ever had in life? Could be work, could be in church, in school, uni, anywhere. Who is your best 
boss or teacher or leader. And what was it about them, just think for a moment, what was it about them that sticks with you? Um, ones that spring to mind for me, um, uh, Sue, my tutor, when I was first re- um, learning radiography in the hospital, we were very young and very daft. And Sue was equal parts mother hen, tough boss, and fun colleague. And she really pushed us to be more than we would have been left to our own devices, uh, but really cared for us as well. And you always felt like you knew the real Sue. So another one I had written down was um, our youth leader, Ian. But I notice one of my old bosses is stuck in today. John's here. So John is, but what I notice is John and Ian had something in common. My old youth leader, you know, we were a bunch of bozos. We were rude, impatient, disruptive. Uh, but Ian and John persevered, never trying to be cool or trendy, but just keeping us in the Bible, always pointing us back to Jesus and loving and serving him. Now, you'll have your own leaders in your life that you can think of. But I bet what you remember about them isn't like their productivity or isn't so much how, what they did, but more who they were, their character. The question we're looking at is, who is fit to lead in church, in our church, in any church? What what competencies do we need? What character? And I want all of us to ask ourselves, am I fit to lead? Well, let's find out what Paul's got to say about it. Um, we're in Paul's letter to his ministry buddy, Titus. He's left him on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean to complete uh, building up churches that they planted there. And Paul's letter here is, is pretty short and pretty blunt. It reads almost like... Um, you know, if you're trying to write an email and your laptop's about to run out of battery, but you've definitely got to send it in that minute. And the email subject, I guess, if it was an email, the subject of the whole thing, verse 1, the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Uh, Paul wants these new believers building up in faith a knowledge of not just any old truth, but the truth, the truth of the gospel, the good news of salvation through Jesus. And these Christians need building up in faith and knowledge of the truth, so they need good leaders. So verse 5, Paul says to Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So this is urgent, because in God's uh, big eternal salvation story, Titus and the Cretans, like us, we're in the last days, you know. These are the days when we live as disciples of Jesus here and now, knowing the grace shown in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, saving us, and looking forward to his coming back in in glory, uh, and looking forward to our eternal life with him. So in eternal terms, this is like the penalty shootout in the World Cup final. It's make or break time. And Titus has got to choose the right players to take the spot kick, as it were. And we have to choose the right players for our church or else the whole team is in danger of not winning the prize. So like the Cretans, we live in a society where our culture is 
pretty much dead set against the gospel. It doesn't really fit in at all. And like the Cretans, we need good leaders. So what Paul's doing today in today's passage is he's doing kind of a compare and contrast. He holds up for us what a good godly leader is and the results of their ministry, and he contrasts that with the false teachers who've already come in and starting to stuff things up in these new churches. So there's an outline in your leaflets there. Uh, This is where we're heading. We're going to look at the good builders and how they need good character and good doctrine. We'll look at the dodgy builders, the false teachers, and then we'll bring it together with hold tight. First up then, good builders. In verses 5 to 9, Paul gives Titus this job of applying the first principles that we looked at last week, of building Christians up in faith and knowledge of the truth of the gospel. So applying that in practice by appointing new leaders for these churches. Um, Don't get hung up on the language. The passage talks about overseers and elders. Um, Other passages talk about deacons. And those words seem to be used interchangeably, and you can't really pin down specific roles to each of them. So that's why I'm just going to talk about leaders. Okay. Now, before you switch off and think, well, that's okay, I'm not an elder or a leader or whatever... Is this relevant just to those of us in leadership role? I mean, where do we draw the line about who this is to? So it is, it is asking Titus to set up elders, leaders in churches. But where do we draw the line? Is it just me? And, or is it me and the leadership team? Maybe we should throw in growth group leaders into the mix. What about our kids, kids' church leaders? Should we say this is about them as well? Or maybe serving team leaders, you know? Actually, we're not going to find anything in this passage that we don't find applied to all Christians in other places in the New Testament. And knowing what God wants for his leaders in his church is important for us all to know so that we can choose the right leaders, so we can know how to help and support our leaders, and so that if we've got concerns about our leaders, our concerns are about the right thing. The, th- the things that God's concerned about. And actually, if you think about you and your network of unbelievers in your life, well, there's a good chance that you're the only Christian they know or one of the very few Christians they know. And so in that sense, every Christian is a leader, the Christian leader to the unbelievers in their life. They're much more likely to talk to you about Jesus than hear me going about him. So churches need leaders, though. You know, a church, so Paul reckons a church without leaders appointed is an unfinished church. And we all, we all will be led, and someone will always lead. Uh, whether or not you're intentional about it, there are always somebody calling the shots and somebody that people follow. And the problem for Titus, as we'll see, is that the wrong people are being given the opportunity to get into these roles and are causing chaos. So, what makes for a good leader in church? What makes us, any of us, be able to be a good leader? Who's God looking for? Got to have good character and good doctrine. So first, good character. Because the standards of behavior 
of church leaders and consequently those we lead, they're the kind of public face, the outworking of our faith in Jesus and knowledge of his gospel. And so there are behaviors and motives and character that do line up with this faith and this truth and point to it and promote it. And there is character and behaviors that oppose the gospel. So let's pick it up at verse 6. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. I'll just explain as we go along briefly. So blameless, we're not looking for sinless perfection. So you don't get to say, well, I'm not perfect, so I can't be a leader. No, it's, it means having a good reputation, literally unaccused. Um, there's nothing scandalous about you that could threaten churches or Jesus' reputation. So what's your reputation amongst your friends and colleagues? Um, there was a year 12 student and you doing the, doing the rounds of parties, everybody else drinking a fair bit. But this guy's reputation, well, he always took some chocolate milk with him and he was known as the chocolate milk guy. And I reckon that's a much better reputation to have than drunken regrets guy. So he's got to be blameless, faithful to his wife. Now, it's not that leaders have to be married, but if they are married, they're literally, it says, a one-woman man. So we should all seek deep, brotherly and sisterly Christian relationships with one another, but only think about and hang out with and relate to in a spouse-like way with one person, uh, your spouse. Okay, All those glances, those comments, that intimacy, that's just for one person and one person only. Children who believe, or that can be translated children who are faithful. Now, look, it's par for the course for parents to have war stories about children being wild and disobedient, isn't it? I don't think there's a parent here who hasn't had a child at some point in their life described as wild and disobedient. And children are great for showing you up as what you really like, aren't they? I bet every parent here has found themselves initially irritated and cross about a word or phrase that the children's using, only to realize they're just speaking back exactly what they've heard you saying. We've all been there. For leaders who have kids, the home is the training and the proving ground for leading in church. And if you can manage to keep home in order, if you've managed to raise kids not characterized on the whole as wild and disobedient, well, then you've got half a chance of being able to lead us rat bags, haven't you? Uh, Paul now goes on to tell us that leaders need to be influential, charismatic, that they need to be great orators, confident and assertive. They need to be able to spot an evil spirit at 10 paces and pray super powerful prayers. Doesn't he? No. Here in verses 7 and 8, we see that it's how we treat other people that is really important to God. And there's nothing in these verses about ability, but an awful lot about character. 
Verse 7, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Let's pick out a few of them. Are you overbearing or quick-tempered? Does the mood of your household revolve around you? Does everyone have to tread on eggshells around you at certain times? Does your browser history or social media show you to be someone who loves what is good? If you drink alcohol, do you drink too much such that you lose self-control? Are you hospitable? Do you regularly have people around your house? Or are you fiercely private? In Christian leadership, character comes first before even thinking about competency. So good leaders have good character and good doctrine. Keeping all those standards of behavior that we've just looked at it's not, that's not what brings a leader or anyone else salvation. But they are evidence that we're holding on to the trust, true, trustworthy message. Verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Hold firmly to the trustworthy message as taught unchanged. In other words, he's got to stick to the franchise. Okay? Can you imagine going into Macca's and ordering some Hungry Jack's food? It's just it's not going to work, is it? It's the wrong franchise. I saw this article. Thank you. Man kicks off in McDonald's after they put onions on a Big Mac. What a silly man, because everybody knows a Big Mac is two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. And if it's not those things, then it's not a Big Mac. You add anything or add anything or take away from it, that's just not a Big Mac. If you add anything or take anything away from the gospel, it's not the trustworthy message. Take the Big Mac down now, Robert, or we'll all be starving by the end of the talk. If you add anything or take away anything from the gospel, it's not the trustworthy message. See, we're part of a much bigger picture here. God's revealed himself, who he is, what he's like, through his word and through Jesus. And Paul's preached this gospel message. And now we're charged with encouraging others in that gospel message. Unchanged, undiluted, and without compromise. A good leader has good character and good doctrine. So when I was appointed as a pastor, what were they looking for? Good theological training? Sure, that's helpful. But how could they know I was holding firmly to it? So I reckon the reference that they could get from Sharon, my wife, and from my children, and from my close friends, was at least as important as any reference Bible college could give me. We want people who walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Just look at verse 9 again. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy messages he's being taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine 
and refute those who oppose it. And there's a couple of ideas knocking around that this blows out the water. One idea you hear from time to time is, we're called to love and follow Jesus, not a set of doctrines. But even the name Jesus is doctrine, isn't it? It means God saves, and that's a truth, a doctrine you either do believe or you don't believe. Because there are lots of false ideas, lots of false Jesuses out there. That if we aren't careful to stick to what God has revealed in his word about Jesus, could lead us to follow a, a false gospel and make, make an easy-to-follow false Jesus in our own image. So doctrine's really important. The other idea that goes around is that we should never be negative in our teaching and preaching. Well, nobody seems to have told the Apostle Paul that, do they? And Paul tells us church leaders should refute those who oppose sound doctrine. See, we need verse 9 because verse 10 is true. There always has been and always will be dodgy builders. It's our next heading. Dodgy builders or false teachers. So having painted this great picture of what someone following the truth looks like, Paul describes to us now the character and the motives and the results of false teachers. Uh, People, it seems, within the church. Verse 10. For there are, not just a few, many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. So their motives aren't faith and truth, but rebellion and dishonest gain. They're not offering knowledge of the truth. They're not offering words of life from God. Only meaningless talk, deceit, and verse 14, myths and merely human commands. Now, sadly, we don't have to look too far to find examples of this in Australia. So the Anglican Archbishop of Brisbane, he said this. First quote, There is a place at the table for all who love God who see God's fullness revealed in Jesus Christ, who open their minds and hearts and lives to the Spirit, who study the Scriptures with care and insight, and who work in the world to see the values of the kingdom embodied. That sounds all right, doesn't it? That sounds pretty good. I could go for that, Archbishop of Brisbane. However, before he said that, he's qualified what um, people who study the Scriptures as care and insight means. He says that that is those who say that the biblical presuppositions no longer stand. Therefore, the moral rules based on these presuppositions and rationale no longer must be regarded as prescriptive and have the responsibility to revisit. We have the responsibility to revisit in our own generations questions about what responsible, holy, life-giving expression looks like today. Now, it's bishop talking to it, but can you see what he's saying? He's saying, instead of holding up ourselves to the gospel to see what is good and true and living in light of that, instead of doing that, deciding for ourselves what is good and true. And if the, if the Bible and the gospel doesn't line up with that, we'll say it no longer stands. You get to choose your own adventure. 
And it's dressed up as being inclusive and tolerant. But it's actually intolerant of the very thing being commanded by Paul here. It's intolerant of holding firmly to the gospel. So it's not care and insight. It's meaningless and deceptive. But come on, can't we just, you know, live and let live? Well, what's our aim? You know, if, if our aim is for the faith of the elect and knowledge of the truth, it really does matter who's, to use this table language, it really does matter who's leading the conversation at the table. It really does matter what is served up at the table that we're all coming to. Now, back to Crete. We don't um, know the, fault, the content of the false teaching on Crete, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is the result. So where knowledge of the truth and holding tightly to it results in godly living and assurance of eternal life, the false teachers have got no confidence. That's what verse 15 is about. To the pure, all things are pure. To those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. So when you're trusting in Jesus, we've been made pure as if we had no sin by Jesus. So we're free to do good works um, and please God in response to that in response to that grace and that purity we already have. But those who are not trusting in Jesus show that up in their lives essentially by trying to save themselves. So they make up a set of human rules. Jesus is great, yeah, but if only you follow this set of rules or you don't do this other set of things, then you'll be okay, is what the false teachers say. So it's not okay to just leave them to it. It's dangerous and damaging So they need to be silenced and rebuked with care and love and with grace, of course, and with the aim, verse 13, not to knock them down, but so that they will be sound in the faith, so that they're led and built up in the truth. Silenced and rebuked, not because we're really up ourselves that we're in the right theological camp or whatever, but because the results of false ministry are just horrible. Verse 11, the disrupting whole households. And verse 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. False teaching, horrible results. So how do we make sure that we don't depart from our foundations of faith and knowledge of the truth? Well, we hold tight. Our last heading, we hold tight. Like those we appoint as leaders, verse 9, hold firmly to the trustworthy message of the gospel as it has been taught, unchanged. So not just be nice to people, not just be, sorry, not just be nice people who make occasional reference to the gospel in passing. No, we're to hold firmly to the gospel like a child clings to its mother. We've got to keep reminding ourselves of the gospel, teaching the gospel, and living in response to the gospel. We've got to keep going on about Jesus. So that affects what we 
expect from church. So expect us to keep teaching the Bible, the tough bits and the nice bits. Because when you think about it, the, the truth is hard to take. The gospel is offensive. The truth that every one of us, left to our own devices, is, is at heart rebellious, destructive and deceitful, deserving of punishment and unable to save ourselves. But the truth is also wonderful that if we put our faith, our trust in Jesus, he saves us into eternal life by grace. So expect us to keep insisting on sound doctrine, refuting and silence those who oppose it so that they're sound in their faith. Expect us to insist that there is a truth and there are lies and there is right which accords with the truth and there is wrong that doesn't. So hold tight, hold tight by not giving up on God, showing you more of his truth, more of Jesus through his word. Keep wrestling with the Bible, asking questions, getting help, reading helpful books which unpack it, studying it together with other believers. Trusting the rewards of doing all of that will be greater than just coming up with your own story or taking shortcuts. So why does any of this matter? You know, why can't we just have as our leaders, whoever volunteers, or you know, the most persuasive, most attractive and talented people? And, you know, and if we're saved by faith and not by works, why is there this long list of do's and don'ts, this high bar for the character of our leaders? Well, it's because truth leads to godliness. So we need to have and to be good leaders who will help us stay in the truth. All the characteristics demanded there in in verse 7 and 8, they're not about efficiency or giftedness or charisma. They're about godliness because knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. Healthy churches need healthy leaders. And our church needs all of us to be like this healthy leader. We might not be leading something, but we need all of us to be like one of these godly leaders. The lead Christian amongst your unbelieving friends, family and colleagues, leading one another just one step at a time in the gospel. But it has to be done by holding firmly to the trustworthy message, the pattern, or else everything else that follows is messed up. Now, I think I've got... Yes, I have. Have a look at this. Be impressed? Impressed? Now, Sharon's made this, my wife Sharon. Um, And, you know, two years ago, she couldn't crochet at all. But she's, she's uh, had a go at this. And uh, it, te- you know, it breaks it down for you, teaches you in sort of a new technique each time. But the thing is, she has to hold tight to the trustworthy message. If she, of the pattern, that is. All right, so this is not the gospel. But she has to hold tight to the trustworthy message of the pattern. If she does this one little bit wrong here, everything that follows 
will be stuffed up. And she has to unpick it and go back and go back to the trustworthy message of the pattern. And we do you know how that's made? Just one stitch at a time. One stitch at a time. And that's how we can lead one another in holding firmly to the gospel one stitch at a time, applying it to our lives one stitch at a time. Now, you might be thinking, I'm just not godly enough. You know, that verse 7 and 8 stuff, that's really convicted me, and I'm not there yet. I shouldn't be in any sort of leadership position. And that's, that's the right conclusion to come to. But don't leave it there. God wants you to be godly. So how can we get this good character? I mean, verse Titus 1 tells us what to aim for and what to reject. But we, what we don't do is get there on our own by just trying harder. No, we're led into having the character of a good leader by knowing the truth about Jesus and trusting, believing and relying on him, having faith in him. We're growing godliness. We're growing to that godly character of a leader by allowing the grace and peace that we know through Jesus rewire our heart, our thinking, our temperament, our language, everything about us. So another way of saying it is we get to Titus 1, 5 to 9 by knowing ever deeper Titus 3, 3 to 7 that we had heard earlier on. And so we'll finish with that. Knowing this truth and letting that seep in and transform us. This is how we grow in godliness. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this amazing grace and mercy you've shown us in your kindness through him. Please grow us in our faith, in our knowledge of the truth, in our our boldness in being able to share that, in our leading one another in that truth. Please raise up leaders for your church. But please help us, each one of us, to be qualified in our character. And not so that we can be pleased with ourselves, but so we can point to your glory and your grace to us in Jesus. Amen.